Welcome to another episode of the show, 713, broadcasting from Houston, Texas. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, as well as to our socials at The Show 713, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. As I look outside, I see beautiful skies, and that may be in part to the work of our guest today, Professor Mark Jacobson. He considers policymakers' choices in the context of the broader economy, showing how factors like Ricardian rents, I'm not sure what that is, untaxed activity in the informal sector, and the presence of green preferences can act to change the type of environmental policy that is most efficient. So welcome, please, Mark. How's it going, Mark? Well, you know, I've jumping back and forth between childcare and trying to get some work done, and... Uh coronavirus, but we're, we're doing all right. So. <laughs> all right. Well, cool. So the reason that we uh, asked you on the show, we did a podcast last week with EVs in mind. So we uh, talked to three Tesla owners that uh, sang the praises. Oddly enough, the electric factor was down at the bottom of the list. They really liked the experience itself as far as the buying experience. The fact that their car gets updates and grows, uh, you know, they have a better car than the two years ago when they bought it kind of thing, just with all the updates. Yeah. And I know that you've, over the years, have done a lot with setting regulations and taxes related around fuel standards and that kind of stuff. But uh, maybe you can kind of introduce yourself and kind of what you've uh, been doing and what you're up to now. And then we'll kind of maybe kind of have a conversation from there, if that sounds good. Sure. Yeah, the Tesla owners I know claim they feel like they're living in the future. They get they get pretty excited uh, about their cars. I don't have one uh, myself, but um, so yeah. So I I don't know how much background you want. I'm a professor at uh, University of California, San Diego, um, and uh, research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, in Cambridge. That brings together uh, economists from from across the country who work on uh, similar topics. And there's a group there that works on. Uh, energy and environmental economics, which is what I work on. And mostly I've studied cars, like you said. Um, when I got into this business, I suppose, uh, I studied mostly fuel economy standards. Um, since then, I've been doing a bunch of work on the scrappage of vehicles, so trying to figure out what causes the vehicle fleet to turn over. And what I anticipate, I'm I'm doing some, some more work right now thinking about how EVs play into that. And so what I anticipate is there's going to be a lot of interest uh, on the policy side, soon thinking about uh, how to get rid of the gasoline cars, right? So what what causes people to scrap their car versus hang on to the thing for thirty years, and then you know even if even if some people are buying EVs, that nothing happens to the fleet, right? Um, so scrappage, and then my most recent project is on the air pollution from the tailpipes of cars that's not carbon dioxide. So thinking about all the other pollutants, so they they make. Um, a lot of NOx, nitrous oxides emissions that uh, most of them turn into particulates and then people breathe them and it's not good for them. They make uh, a lot of volatile organic uh, compounds that that likewise have pretty bad health consequences. And the problem is that the cars are just right next to where we live and walk and stuff. All that pollution is coming out at ground level, uh, whereas with a power plant or something, it makes pollution too, um, sometimes not even as much. Uh, as a city's fleet of cars, and also it's way up in the air, and it doesn't do as much um, damage. So it's a really important pollutant, really important set of questions, and we're learning that. Uh, I guess the key takeaway I'd say from from that so far is just that um, old cars are much more polluting than we thought. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not too surprising. What is an old car to you? 
10 years. Okay. Uh, but you know, cars are, you know, most cars are lasting 20 now. It's, it's remarkable. So there's, there's a lot of old cars out there. And when you talk scrappage, are you talking about the secondary resale market? Or are you actually talking crushing it and putting it in a landfill? Crushing it into a, a cube and draining all the oils out of it and sending the cube to usually across the, the ocean to get recycled into more steel for more cars. So actual destruction of the, of the car. Okay. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting distinction because a lot of cars, you know, people think, people think cars last 10 years or 12 years because by that time they're not worth much and they're kind of gone and they don't see them as much in their life. But, you know, there's, there's lots of people out there who you know, make their living keeping the car going for another year or two and, and uh, maintaining it, you know, themselves or using uh, spare parts and so on. And they, cars, they, they just, they last a long time. So a typical car has many, many owners. Uh, and the final person who makes the scrappage decision is actually usually a mechanic uh, or a tow truck driver for a scrapyard who decides that, you know, whatever is needed for this car to get it running for another thousand miles or 2000 miles is, is more expensive than, um, than they could sell the car to somebody for, than they could send the that cube of scrap steel off for recycling for, and then they, they decide to scrap. Okay. And then you talked about some of the stuff that you're working on. I'm looking at your most recent paper, the use of regression statistics to analyze imperfect pricing policies. So I know we have a new president, President Biden here in the United States, and is all about uh, climate change and doing more green technology. How does this particular paper and then also your thoughts relate around this new momentum that we're seeing already in uh, canceling pipelines and everything? Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. Uh, it's going to be an incredibly uh, interesting time, to say the least, as all of the changes that were made under the Trump administration start to get uh, redone and rethought again. So the people at EPA have a have a, a big pile of work on their desks right now to go to try to think about um, regulations that maybe were passed under uh, the second Bush administration, which, which had a very large number actually of energy regulations and then some under the Obama administration. A lot of those were all rolled back. And then the question is, you know, what's, how do we think about doing the economic and scientific analyses to bring those things back and, and, and what are the effects of it? Um, my imperfect pricing policy, the, the title is a mouthful. It does have a lot of theoretical stuff in it about statistics and about uh, what we call welfare analysis and economics, which is not the analysis of welfare checks, but the analysis of or human welfare in some sense, how, how, how distortionary is a particular policy. So it turns out that cars, and my, my example of the pollution is, it fits right into this, um, anything you do to regulate the car space is usually imperfect in the sense that you'd like to scrap just the dirtiest cars or you'd like to tax people who are driving their cars around in rush hour and worsening traffic jams maybe tax them a little bit so that some of them might be able to drive at a different time of day without even bothering their schedule too much and if they only had to pay a small tax you could get them to drive at some other time of day uh, or people who drive their their heavily polluting cars by schools and and whatever should maybe you know could be encouraged to not do that, right? But but of course, if you think about these things, incredible invasion of privacy and, and just technologically difficult to try and tax people correctly for all the things, all the damage that they're doing with their car. Um, and so most policies are imperfect. 
in the sense that, you know, we have a registration fee. We have, a, many states have a smog check program or they have safety inspections of vehicles. And again, it's it's imperfect. There are certain vehicles that you'd really like to target, but you can't because it's sort of a one-size-fits-all thing. And so what that paper does is it asks, well, you know, you can do nothing. That's sort of one state of the world. Another state of the world is this imaginary one where you have the perfect prices. Every Everybody pays exactly the amount of damage that they're doing. So if you love to drive your car past schools during rush hour causing traffic jams and pollution, you pay a higher tax than somebody who who, you know, drives out in the countryside and really doesn't even influence that many people, right? Not many people are breathing that exhaust as opposed to somebody else's exhaust that's getting, right? So um, if you can't do that, then the, then what we call the second best policy is one where you say, yeah, maybe registration fees are going to be a little bit higher in the city because most people who drive in the city are doing more damage with the air pollution, they're causing more traffic jams on average, and so maybe they should pay a little bit higher of a, of a fee for doing that. And then that's imperfect, right? Because obviously not everyone in the city is the same. Not everyone in rural areas is the same. And so it's a, it asks, it, it provides a statistical way to kind of try and identify uh, how much of the benefit from the optimal tax you could get if all you can do is this imperfect thing where you tax some people a bit more and other people less. That's good. And who would be the end viewer of this? Are these policymakers that you are sending this to in California or anywhere? Or is it just kind of... Well, I'm an academic, right? So, so these things go to the academic journals. Um, but, you know, we, we get a surprising amount of interest from um, EPA, which now has a very large economics group, uh, because there's there's a lot of, over the years, EPA's task has changed from being sort of a purely scientific, you know, you know, let's try and reduce this particular type of pollution or protect this particular species to much more of a regulatory, right? Like what are the costs and benefits? What are the economics of this policy? Who's it going to hurt? Who's it going to help? Um, and so there's a lot more interest in economics and those people read the economics journals and they talk to us. Um, and the MBER that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this, this national organization, they really do a lot to try and bring us together with policymakers. So papers like that one, uh, and others get presented at at uh, conferences. I was at the National Press Club uh, a couple of years ago with with a bunch of um, policymakers and academics. I tried to have it be sort of fifty fifty. Uh, and so, you know, we environmental economists and, and myself uh, included, we we really want to have uh, an influence on policy in the sense that we make it more efficient. Right? We want to get more environmental protection for the same money, uh, or better environmental protection for the same money, or try and you know sort of cut waste and inefficiencies that we see. Uh, and I think that the, the agencies appreciate that and are, are starting to think seriously about, you know, some of our approaches. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, you hear again more about data, data, data. You know, if you're going to know that somebody's driving through a school zone, you know, and being more polluted, or even somebody that's in a downtown establishment that does have a car, but maybe they only drive it once a month, like, are you going right. to... Yeah, so they shouldn't be charged some huge registration fee, right? Because yeah. they're not. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I, let me. One thing I, I noticed that uh, you know we're talking about uh, taxing certain people, but what, what, how do we go about? Uh, well, let me let me back up uh, and let me paint out a scenario that I saw. And this was back in I, I think back in the early '90s, Mexico City, right? Large, large population you know, very widespread city, very, very polluted at the time. And yeah. 
they instituted a program where you could not drive your car certain days of the week and they yep. forced you to take mass transit that that the chat i think many cities in the u.s can do that but many cities in the u.s and i'll and i'll just call out houston houston's great they're working on mass transit they're not there yet so how do we incentivize you know uh, you know people in government in local government really to incentivize people to say hey you know what Tuesday and Thursday, I'll take the bus or I'll take the light rail or whatever that transport method no, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we how do we how do we close that gap between government and 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 just the regular you know Joe and that wants to contribute to you know climate change because that's ultimately yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, this is a you know you've you've sort of hit at the heart of of a lot of what environmental economics struggles with, with policy, right, is that policymakers like um, what we call direct regulation or these concrete solutions where you just say, yeah, you can't drive in on Tuesdays or, you know, you can only buy in California. Uh, our governor came up earlier. You're only going to be able to buy an electric car starting in 2040 and probably a few years from now, right, the dealerships are going to be told you have to sell 50-50 electric and gas or whatever, right? They're, they're going to be phasing that in. Um, these sorts, and, and economists, uh, tend to favor prices and taxes, right? We think that the the better approach uh, is to to tax people. The reason for that is that you know somebody might have a really really hard time buying an electric car. You know, you could figure out you know some reason they can't charge it, they have to drive just more than the range or or whatever. And economists would say, well, you know, as long as most people are buying electric cars, if that person really has to, and they're willing to pay the tax to do it they should still be able to buy a gasoline car, right? Whereas the policymakers like these concrete things, just like Mexico City, they tell you you can't drive in on Tuesday if your license plate ends in the number six, right? Well, you know, what if Tuesday I had a doctor's appointment or Tuesday, right, and I really want to drive in? And that's where economists would say, no, the better solution is a toll, like London does. So London charges a heavy toll to drive into the center of the city during rush hour, um, and it fixed their problem. And New York was was uh, going to do that for Manhattan, and all the delivery drivers and uh, limousine drivers and so on started blocking the bridges and protesting, and it never happened, right? And so the result is they're still choking traffic, and you sit for three hours trying to cross the the bridge during rush hour, right? So, so it's 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 there's this real aversion to paying money, paying taxes on the part of uh, I suppose yeah the general the general public, the average Joe, right? And yet economists think that that's the solution, right, is, is, is make people pay and then they'll, they'll figure out if it's worth it to them or not to do this, uh, to do this thing. Uh, and the government gets more revenue as, as a bonus if the government's uh, trying to pay off a deficit or uh, issue rebate checks or whatever it wants to do at the, at the moment, right? But there, there's, a, there's just this incredible political difficulty with, with enacting these sorts of taxes or fees that economists propose. And so there's some compromise solutions that are like halfway between where you sort of, you pay a tax, but maybe you get the money back some other way. And, and hopefully it encourages you to do the right thing without being as black or white as a, as a mandate would be. And then you compound that with the difficulties in the Senate, right? You know, when you have a Senate yeah. that's 50, 50 and, and just the 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 you know the current climate, <laughs> I think that just makes it more that much more difficult. Oh yeah, and and, and you know the U.S. has reached this this incredible point of. I was talking to a sociologist earlier today about 
what they called veto points in societies, right? And so the U.S., you know, if you want to pass a law in the U.S., right, there's all these veto points, right? The, the Senate, the House, the President, the Supreme Court, and then other sorts of, of you know, uh, sort of people can be recalled, like our governor or whatever. There's all these kind of ways that our society, as opposed to many others, allows these veto points. And so it makes it really hard for us to do any legislation. And so the solution has sort of been, we'll set up EPA, give them a really vague mandate that's just, you know, do good things for the environment, and then let them write regulations that are not laws, right? So things like fuel economy standards have a huge impact on companies and on people, but that's not a law. That's a regulation that EPA just just does. It just does, writes a long uh, justification for it and says, you know, we're doing this because it makes economic sense and and it's going to help the environment. And you know, they just do it. There's not there's not a law about it. Um, and and indeed, that's in some ways the only way we've gotten real progress on on environmental uh, matters in in recent. Uh, in recent times, exactly because of the gridlock you mentioned, everything is 50-50 or, you know, one one set of terms, it's 51-49 and the next one is 49-51. And, and, you know, it kind of flips back and forth and nothing ever ever um, happens. Climate, climate change, you know, EPA could unilaterally do something on climate change. They tried to with the clean power plan uh, at the end of the Obama administration. And uh, it got tangled up in the courts. And then uh, Trump took office soon after that. And it got more tangled up in the courts and the whole thing just sort of uh, got put on indefinite suspension. And, you know, right now EPA is scrambling to try and come up with a new, a new set of climate regulations that could be anything from carbon taxes to electric car mandates or, um, you know, solar and wind mandates. I mean, they, they, they have the power to do all that stuff unless Congress specifically takes it away from them. But like you said, the, the gridlock means Congress isn't going to do anything really, probably one way or the other. Right? Right. This is this is EPA is going to going to come up with a regulation, and then the courts are going to figure out uh, if you know if the regulation flies or or not. It just taking one step back, I guess. You know, you, you mentioned you know the ten year time frame that you 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 know you assign to a vehicle that considers that vehicle old here in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, but we're not you know we're not talking about that car leaving the u.s which you see quite a bit where you know older vehicles get get bought you know whether an auction or however however that method is and it gets shipped out of the u.s how's that tracked and and does the same flow right where where you know maybe it lasts another three to five years and then it goes to, to 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 salvage right to the junkyard yeah so that's a fascinating question. I'm trying to get some graduate students to work on that right now because we just don't know much. We don't know much about it. In the U.S., what we broadly understand is that cars, um, the newer cars are on the coasts and in the bigger cities inland, and the older cars make their way toward the center of the country and toward the rural areas. Um, so, so for example, in California, a car with a check engine light on cannot be registered. The, the uh, there's a, a every two years check, and if the check engine light is on and you don't fix it, you can't register it, but you can sell it across the line into Nevada, Arizona, or someone can register it and drive it, right? And so the cars kind of move um, according to where the states will allow them, right? And the other, and, and so that's sort of one feature of the U.S. Some of them get exported to Mexico. That's our biggest export of cars, of old cars, but surprisingly few. So the U.S. is is one of the more closed vehicle economy is in the sense that we kind of have everybody here. We have people who want to buy brand new cars, and we also have people who want to drive 
a 23 year old car that's barely, you know, making it uh, up the hills anymore, right? And so, um, uh, and so most of them live their whole life in the U.S. and get scrapped in the U.S. and then sent on shipping containers to, to be recycled. Europe is a completely different story. So there's uh, many cities in Germany in particular now uh, effectively ban cars more than six or seven years old in the city center uh, through a system of um, color-coded window stickers that tell you how, how polluting it is. And cars that are more than you know six years old say just can't get the good window sticker. And so you could drive it in the countryside in Germany, but you can never go into the city. And so people don't want them. So they export them. And those ones end up in Eastern Europe and Northern Africa. And they move, you know, sort of sort of much farther in the sense of crossing, crossing over into different countries. Uh, and so that trade, you know, how does a how does a car from Europe it gets it gets banned because it's too dirty, essentially, where does it end up? And what should we think about the pollution that it does in the place that it ends up? And what would have happened otherwise? And so there's all kinds of uh, really interesting questions on yeah on, on vehicle trade. Um, if the U.S. makes a big jump toward electric cars, let's say EPA uh, makes a big uh, sort of sort of mandate on electric cars, all of a sudden there could be a lot of gasoline vehicles in the U.S. that are going to get exported somewhere, and we don't know where yet, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it could be um, uh, Asia, it could be Africa, India. That's definitely an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah. Do you lose track of them once they leave the U.S.? Yeah, the only way to not lose track of them is to get data from other countries on registrations. And so depending on the quality of, of uh, databases and governance and in, in the place where it ends up, you can have better or worse luck uh, tracking them. Uh, of course, the VIN number stays on the car and the VIN number is the same. And, and if, if the receiving country actually documents it, then we can track them pretty well. Um, the other thing to do is that international trade in general is documented pretty well. So I might know that a, a shipment of, you know, 50 cars valued at $2,000 a piece just left Germany on its way to, you know, um, uh, Kyrgyzstan or something, right? And, and, and I, can, I can see it leave in the international trade data. I might not necessarily see them registered in the new country, and I might not see how long they last in the new country, but I can at least see their value and and the number of them as they as they get shipped out. But yeah, that's that's the, the challenge for the graduate student is to f- <laughs> maybe we'll send them over different places. <laughs> yeah. So, and then what's the average life of a car these days? Would you say? Oh, I don't want to quote the exact number. I think it's I think it's around thirteen or fourteen years right now. But that's average, right? So, so a lot of them are totaled in accidents, even when they're quite new. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about um, that. And so, yeah. So conditional on not getting in an accident, their 20 years is, is typical. And then you've got another paper that you did, estimating the costs and benefits of fuel economy standards. Yeah. So obviously in the last administration, you saw some varying standards on that. We did, we did. That, this is the piece in science. Correct. Oh, one of the book series. Yeah, so it was related to a piece in science that I did with similar title, but not quite the same. Um, yeah, so both those papers actually look at um, the regulatory impact analysis that was used to justify the uh, the freezing of the Obama standards. So the Obama era fuel economy standards were getting our cars more and more fuel efficient uh, up until about twenty thirty or so, 
Uh, and every year it was sort of progressively increasing, right? And so the Trump administration froze that in 2020 and said it should just be completely flat from 2020 onward. Um, and there was this large document, close to a thousand pages of uh, analysis documenting why that was the right call economically, right? Essentially saying that the cost of the technology to make the cars more efficient uh, was going to exceed the benefit uh, from uh, reducing CO2. And so our question was, well, under the Obama administration, EPA also produced a thousand pages of economic analysis that said the opposite, that said that it was worth it, right? And so we wanted to we wanted to ask, well, what was different in those two analyses? And then try to think about, you know, you know, what are the key assumptions here and how could they come up with different conclusions and so on. So um, we dug into it. Uh, so engineering costs is obviously a big one. So the engineers who were cited under the Obama administration said, oh, you know, it's, it's not that expensive. You can put in uh, turbochargers and you can uh, use, you know, electric power steering and electric air conditioning and so on and ways to, to improve the efficiency of cars. And then it wouldn't be that expensive for a typical consumer car. Uh, and then the engineers under the Trump administration said it's going to cost $10,000 to make a car this efficient, essentially. Right? And so I, I'm making up numbers, obviously, but it was about three times uh, the cost. Uh, under and right, and so that was one big piece. The other big thing they did was uh, the carbon dioxide benefits, the climate change benefits. Under the Obama administration, they considered the climate change benefits for the world of having less gasoline being burned in the U.S. Um, and under the Trump administration, they only considered the climate change benefits that would land within the U.S. Right, and this is actually a, a, a the the you know, incredibly important and challenging question, right, is when we're making legislation in the U.S. here about saving gasoline, let's say, or saving coal or, or natural gas or whatever, um, you know, should we be considering, um, you know, uh, uh, benefits from avoided climate change that are happening in the tropics and, and, and elsewhere, or should we only be considering benefits that happen to American citizens? Uh, and it's you know it's a difficult question uh, politically, but obviously it matters a lot, right? Because it's it's a big world, and the U.S. is a relatively small piece. And so if you're only thinking about gains that Americans will enjoy from from avoided climate damage, it's obviously a smaller number than if you think about the gains that the world will will have from from less climate damage. Um, and so that's a you know that that was that was a big one, and there were some a whole bunch of other assumptions that we thought about uh, to do with vehicle safety and uh, miles driven and, and so on. So have the graphs lined up? I mean, you're hearing more and more that aside from maybe a, you know, super profitable SUV that car companies really have maybe taken a turn and are only looking to invest in genuine electric cars. Well, they, you know, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, right? I mean, I think the other car companies are sort of looking at that, there was a there was a statistic uh, showing the you know the market cap of Tesla, and I think it was the thirteen biggest automakers in the world. Like Tesla is bigger than the thirteen biggest automakers in the world combined, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's you know it's just kind of remarkable, and I think they realized that they they sort of missed uh, the bus on 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 some of these issues, uh, and so yeah, you're seeing a pretty pretty rapid switch to EV development now. Um, and, you know, people, like you said, I, I, I didn't hear your your story on, on Tesla, but, you know, people like them, right? And not not because they're electric, they like them because they're powerful and they they uh, have lots of, you know, modern 
tech in them and they're they're nice cars, right? And so, you know, I think the the other car companies are looking to try and cash in on on some of that. Yeah, I think that they were just afraid to be able to cannibalize their their cash cow services or anything else, you know. Well, that's true, yeah. Yeah, well, SUV sales are up even now. Yeah. Right? It's been the last few years in this remarkable run uh, in SUV uh, sales. I mean, people people like big cars too. So there is this sort of trade-off of, uh, you know, how to get the consumer to, to buy in. Well, it's like you were saying. I mean, I think people don't mind driving their SUV at $2 a gallon, but they start getting a little bit skittish at $4 a gallon. So it seemed like $4 was the number to really get people to start thinking about other vehicles. Yeah. But uh, you were talking about with the EPA and how they can write, you know, basically regulations and kind of side skirt the veto in this. Mm-hmm. We heard that those departments were kind of gutted. Are they getting back up to speed? Or I assume that you have friends or at least knowledge of the EPA over the last four years or so? Yeah, I mean, I certainly I certainly know several economists who who uh, who work there. Um yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, I know some people in D.C., not in EPA, but I know people in uh, Department of Justice and um, uh, FTC, Federal Trade Commission, who, you know, just quit. Right. I mean, you know, good, good analysts who just just, you know, we're done. Right. And so some of that damage in the sense of, you know, um, uh, quality people, with a lot of history and knowledge of, of everything that's going on, just just quit because they couldn't deal with what their their supervisors were sort of passing down on them in the last administration. And so some of that damage, it takes a while to repair because you have to rebuild a, a um, capable group of people who, who can who can do these analyses and write these regulations. Um, I think the biggest the biggest thing is just going to be time, right? It, it, particularly for EPA that there are so many uh, regulations that that were undone in, in the past few years. Uh, and and you can't just turn back the clock and redo them because a whole new set of precedent and justifications and legal stuff has happened uh, that that makes it hard to just immediately flip back. And so I think speed is really going to be the the trick, right? And particularly for climate change, right? We've waited for so long to do something, and now you know if EPA takes a few years to write a new regulation, and then that new regulation phases in over a decade and there's some court fights and whatever, right? I mean, we're looking at, you know, at timescales now that are starting to become really, really urgent, right? I mean, in the 90s, sure, we could wait, you know, we could wait a decade or even, um, but now it's it's becoming harder. And so EPA is really up against this this time crunch. And I think that's the that's going to be the hard part for them is, is getting something written fast and getting it phased in fast. But I think the people are there and, and I think they'll they'll hit the ground running. All the new appointees will will you know start going as fast as they can here, really, in the next in the next few months. But it's it, there's a process that limits uh, the pace of uh, of regulation. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, a lot of your studies are around the combustion engine and standards in regards to that. But let's say now we've kind of hit the tipping point. We're all more you know doing electric vehicles now. Combustion engines are less. Are we solving the climate problem? I mean, you do hear theories that, you know, we still need the power plant to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I mean the. Yeah, so I, I don't study these these things in 
you're too much detail, but I, I've a lot of my colleagues do. And the, the question is, how fast can we retire the coal plants and the natural gas plants, right, and replace them with wind turbines and, and solar? Um, and the problem is, if you suddenly put, you know, tens of millions of EVs uh, in people's garages charging every night, that makes it really hard to retire the fossil fuel plants because you can't build the renewable capacity fast enough uh, to feed all the all the EVs. And so there's kind of this interplay of, you know, how, how fast can we uh, expand the electric grid and retire the dirtiest power plants um, and charge all the charge all the EVs. Now I think in you know in, in, in reality I think the transition to EVs is going to be slow enough that the you know the grid will be able to keep up and we'll be able to to retire the most polluting uh, power plants and stuff in, in a reasonable span of time. But th- there is that question of yeah sort of the engineering time just you know how long does it take to uh, get the grid cleaner and and um, and replace the car stock. There's a recent paper out on EVs that that's concerned that people aren't driving them enough, uh, which is the opposite from concern usually here. But it turns out that a lot of the owners of EVs uh, don't have long commutes. They they have houses that are pretty close to where they work, or they're you know self-employed, or, or various things, right? And they're not out there driving 100 miles each day to the job site or, or whatever it might be, right? And so the EVs are actually getting driven, you know, much less than, than seems like would be good. They're just kind of, they're not going to the right people. You know, if we want to do a lot of uh, climate benefit in the shortest time, we need to get the EVs in the hands of the people that are putting lots and lots of miles on them, not in the hands of somebody who, you know, mostly keeps it in the garage and, you know, drives it a few miles to the store kind of thing. Right. So, so it's, uh, uh, that's, that's, I think an important challenge. But isn't that where a lot of the pollutant is from start to those those short trips, though, in regards to, like the car is not quite up to efficiency? That's true. A lot of the local air pollution is there. Yeah, that, that's a good, yeah, separating um, the world of sort of climate pollutants and CO2 and gasoline burning from the world of smog and uh, the carcinogens and the particulates and stuff that people breathe in. Cars do both of those. Gasoline cars do both of those, right? And so... And and you're absolutely right that the, it's the short trips to the store where you've got a cold start, uh, maybe the catalytic converter isn't warmed up yet, um, and you're you know you're putting out a lot of nasty stuff. Uh, unfortunately, by the time you get to the freeway in the middle of nowhere, you're not polluting very much, but there's nobody there to to benefit from that either potentially. And so yeah, that's a good point. And EVs in general, um, if you just look at the kind of the benefits from them. The local air pollution benefits and cleaning up the, the cities and the neighborhoods uh, are, are enormous. And, and I think most economists would agree they're probably bigger than the climate benefits. The climate benefits are important, too, but that the, just the, the sort of benefits on people's health and, in, in cities and, and neighborhoods are probably bigger um, from electric cars. Is there a group that's studying electric cars in the sense of batteries, you know, where the life of them? You know, I don't know. You're saying that some of these cars can go... 20 plus years, I don't know if a battery will last that long. Probably not. Yeah, and we don't know. And that's one of the things that stops stops people from buying them, right? They're worried that that they're they're going to put all this money in the car and five years from now, they're going to have to buy a $20,000 battery as part of their, you know, 30K service or whatever, right? And and we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be doing that. And so, you know, we, we just don't know how long the batteries are going to last. Um, the The rest of it, the rest of the drivetrain is 
is actually simpler and probably easier to repair than a gasoline car. So electric motors, you know, a good electric motor and a sealed gearbox can just last a really long time. Right? A gasoline engine has all this uh, airflow and the oil and the whatever that, that has to be changed and, and over time you know, gums everything up. But the, the rest of an electric car has the potential to last a really long time. Uh, and, and the battery, you're, you're absolutely right. That's the point. The engineers tell us they're working on it. Economists have a history of being a little bit skeptical of engineering claims. Uh, you know, if the engineer tells you the, the battery lasts 20 years, maybe you can count on half that. Or if the engineer tells you that your your new refrigerator is going to only, you know, cost you $5 a month in electricity, maybe it's not going to be quite so rosy, right? Because then they have an incentive, you know, to to uh, to, to sell their, their ideas. And, and to their credit, a lot of these things do eventually work that well, but it takes longer to get it to market and longer to... Uh, you know, longer to get the bugs worked out than than I think they they sometimes anticipate. This is maybe out of your purview, but uh, as I was listening to you and thinking about why is uh, a combustion engine car defunct after the engine wears out or or however that usually sends it to the to the scrapyard as opposed to getting a new engine or even putting it you know making an electric car. Or are there yeah. any avenues of that? So it turns out it's a yeah, so we have actually done some some work on that. So you can think about, uh, look at the depreciation on a car. Uh, and there's some pretty simple statistics you can do to look at the value of cars that are sold at auction or sold at used car dealerships. And you can think about, well, how many miles does it have on it, which is a proxy for how much longer the engine might last, uh, versus just how many calendar years have passed since it was manufactured. How old is it? Does it still have a CD player? Does it still have a tape deck? Right, And, and it turns out that calendar years uh, are what really takes the value off cars, much more than the odometer. So, so what happens is um, time, time is bad for the engine too because the seals harden and so on. But it's really just, you know, the car gets out of date and all the little stuff starts to fail. The electric windows don't work anymore and the, the radio quits and, and the you know, heater doesn't work right and whatever. And even though the engine might be good enough, a lot of cars with perfectly, you know, another... 100,000 miles left on the engine get scrapped just because nobody's willing to pay anything for the rest of the car. And if nobody's willing to pay anything for the rest of the car, because it's just not nice anymore, um, then it's not worth fixing even a minor engine problem and the whole thing gets scrapped. No, is that a problem? Uh, I would argue, no, that's actually sort of a, a good thing because even an old car uh, that you could keep running, uh, but no one wants uh, even like if you kept it running, it would be really heavily polluting. And so what you should do uh, is to scrap it and make sure you recycle the parts and so on, build a new car, it makes a lot of jobs, it helps the economy, right? Build a new car out of the same steel uh, that's that's going to be far less far less polluting, right? Because it has more modern emissions controls or it might even be electric or, or whatever. Are you or, or anyone that you know conducting, you know, we, we talk, we've talked quite a bit about personal vehicles is anyone doing any research uh, on commercial vehicles? Like, you know, and now I'll, I'll even include, uh, you know, the uh, the the mass transit uh, buses that are still using uh, traditional gasoline. Or do you? Know, I, know, yeah. I, I know. I know quite a bit are converting to 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 kind of a hybrid, uh, but I know that still many are are, are still traditional yeah, yeah. gasoline. 
Um, not new. That's a great question. I wish I had you guys to, to get my grad students excited about this stuff. I've been trying for years to get my grad students to write on commercial vehicles uh, because uh, diesel is more polluting than gasoline just in general. Uh, and of course, most of the even delivery trucks and, and certainly all the big trucks are, are diesel and buses. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's highly polluting and not enough has been done. We just don't know enough. The first round of standards uh, again, coming out of the Obama administration, it was going to try and clamp down a little bit on commercial diesel engines just for local air pollution reasons, you know, just to try and alleviate smog and asthma problems and so on. The The first round of regulation for that was just coming out of the Obama administration. It got squashed and postponed as well. And so we're, we still have almost no regulation on, on these, these commercial engines and they're pretty dirty. And people haven't done enough research. It's, I hope it's coming. <laughs> I've got one student who's, who's trying, and I have a colleague who's interested in uh, long-distance truck fleets as well. Hopefully that spurs action on that, on that research. Yeah, I, 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 it's needed. It's needed, and the policy is, is needed too, because it doesn't make sense to, to clamp down only, on, only in one place when you've got a whole bunch of sources uh, of the pollution, it, it kind of um, economics tells us that the more you can spread out the regulation, the more you can spread out the burden of cleaning up a problem, the the cheaper it will be because you don't want to push really hard on one person and let somebody else go go sort of free. It's better to kind of push moderately on both of them uh, sure. to achieve the same result. Sure. Uh, you know, you, you said something earlier, long haul. And I know that in the personal space with the EVs and, and in the self-driving cars, now we're we're seeing a lot of the uh, long haul trucks converting over to you know uh, you know self driving. Um, yep. You know it, it, that would be, I think, in my mind, very interesting to see from a research perspective how you can compare you know diesel versus self driving electric. I, that would be something to yeah. really just keep an eye on and be be cool to just track. Yeah, I, it's it's so it's so hard for me to even imagine a battery big enough to pull a long distance semi, but they're coming supposedly. <laughs> the engineering is pretty pretty. Yeah, supposedly, yeah. Tesla's been aren't they working on an eighteen wheeler? I I think they are, and there's there's another company that I, 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 uh, escapes me at the moment, but that that already has prototypes. Yeah. No, I mean they can do it. I think the technology's there. I think it's it's a fine balance. You know, you you, you talked about these power plants, you know, and, and just transitioning away from those. But I think those are, you know, you, you can't have knee jerk reactions. I know the, the, the new administration came in and kind of shut down the, uh, the keystone almost immediately, oh, but right. you just, you know, and you just can't, uh, in my, in my view, I don't think you can just have those knee jerk reactions. I think it's to your point, right. The research, you know, and, and really just presenting the, the data so that decisions can be made in a way that makes sense, in a way that you're not making knee-jerk reactions and you're letting all of the pieces come together uh, at the appropriate time, right? And I think that's just going to take time and patience, right, on a lot of our parts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the pipeline is the definition of a political football, right? I mean, it, it's it's something that people grab onto, right? It's it's in their minds as something that's important and they they feel really strongly about it, even if they don't really understand how much more or less oil is going to come into the U.S. as a result, and and or any of it really, um, and, but it, it becomes really politicized. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Right, the point is we need to. Well, we need more economists in some sense, right? We need we need people to figure out not only what's technologically possible, which we hope the engineers tell us, but also you know what makes sense and the pace at which it makes sense uh, to put it in place, uh, and essentially how you get the most environmental bang for for the buck. I guess the uh, last two questions are: What car do you drive? Well, that's a good question. I spent some quality time at the DMV today trying to register a, a used vehicle I just bought from uh, from my uncle. Um, uh, so I we we mostly drive a, a Subaru Crosstrek, uh, which is not particularly fuel efficient, um, but it's nice for you know going to the mountains and doing stuff. Now, what I will will say in my defense of uh, not having an EV, which many of my students pretty much expect me to have an EV, I find. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 I don't, I live very close. I live like three miles from where I work. So uh, my commute is, uh, is extremely short. Even if I had an EV, uh, I would be saving a, a very small amount of carbon uh, per year. <laughs> but um, uh, but no, it's, it's uh, we've said our next car might be an EV, but yeah, not yet. Yeah, Olson and I are still mulling over the EVs after the last episode. Oh, Yeah. We'll see. You weren't sold. You weren't instantly sold on a, a new Model Y or something. <laughs> there is a price point. You know, they're still not giving them away. I know Elon thinks that they're getting more affordable, but uh, they did make some good points in regards to, again, you know, the updates and uh, customer service is also what they kept saying. If something goes wrong on it, they'll come out to your house and fix it. So I think that they're really kind of getting around what I think the combustion engine folks have been totally thinking about electric, electric, electric versus this. And, and I think it's, it's beyond that now. I think it's more about uh, just rethinking what the car experience is. Yeah, that's a good point, making it more. What about you, Olsen? You going to give them? Yeah, you, you know, uh, it, it really, you know, it comes down to price point, right? You know, if you're saying the, the richest man in the world is saying that they're becoming more affordable, I'm not buying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. It may be a while before they're uh, same price as a as a little gas little gas car, but we'll see. <laughs> For sure. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and leave it there then. And uh, we totally appreciate your time, and we hope that they definitely take a look at your uh, papers and that you get invited to many many conversations in regards to uh, where we're going with our uh, auto standards. Yeah, thank you. It's going to be an interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they come out with <laughs> in the next year or so. so. Yeah, I'm excited. I think the momentum is definitely there, and we'll have to see. So awesome. Well, thanks again, Mark, for uh, being on the show. We greatly appreciate your insights and your time. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mark. Again, be sure to check us out on all the social medias at the show, 713, and be sure to subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcast. The show, 713. Take care, everybody, and we'll hear you next time. Thank you.